One of my uh, nephews, my youngest nephew, just got his uh, driver's permit a couple of months ago. And uh, he was telling me about his experience, terrible experience at the uh, DMV, at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Uh, and he was just telling me, he was complaining about it. He just said it was like he kind of waited forever on lines. And I said to him, listen, you got no idea. Um, if you think it's bad now, you should have seen what it was like, you know, 30, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, if you're old enough to remember, it's like, it was terrible, you remember? Like it was hellish uh, having to go to the DMV. Um, still not great, but way better than it was uh, in the past. Remember, like do you remember, remember the lines? Like it was insane. He'd be wait, he'd wait on the line for 45 minutes, and they'd tell you you were on the wrong line. You know, he'd have to get off and call another one. Uh, lack of direction. Like nobody's saying, all right, you want to go here or you want to go there. You don't need this. You know, 10,000 proofs of identification you needed. You'd wait on line. They'd tell you, no, you need you need this or you need that. You had to go back home. The staff. Remember, remember those people who used to work there? They were like terrible, screaming at you, like you lived in fear of them because they had the power to say, okay, you got what you need or, or, or no good. It was just a horrible, my memory anyway, it was a horrible, horrible place. Uh, I remember when I went for my permit test, sadly, this is a true story, um, that's the written test for your permit, and I failed it. Uh, after waiting like forever online to, to take the test, I failed it. But you were given a, you were allowed to take it a second time right away. Uh, if you failed that one, then you had to make a new appointment and do the whole thing again. So I failed the first one. I walk out, my dad is waiting, already aggravated because it's taken forever. And I told him I failed it. So he looked at me and he was like, you get back in there and you pass that test. Like, there's no way I'm coming back to this place again. So now I'm even more of a wreck. I took, took the test again and I failed it a second time. So it was, I remember driving home with him and it was just like he was, it was like I wasn't even in the car. Uh, and then like every five or six minutes, every like five or six minutes he'd be, like, he'd be driving and he'd just he'd do this, he'd go, he just look at me like with disgust and then go back to driving the car. I was like, it was terrible. It was just a terrible, bad day. Um, and I was thinking about the DMV. There's something unique about them, which I think enables it to be this uniquely terrible place that we all kind of dread. Um, it's this. They have something that we all need. And what they have, you can't get anywhere else. If you want a driver's license, or if you want your permit, or if you want to get your boat registered, or whatever it is, like that's the only place you can get those things. There's no competition. And maybe on some level they know that. So it's sort of like, hey, you do what we say, or you don't get your car, you, know, you don't get your driver's license. So we're at their mercy. And they don't treat us well. I mean, I hope there's no DMV employees out there, but we kind of hate the DMV. We need it, 
but we kind of hate it. They just have too much control over us. There was this survey that was done about a year and a half ago. It has nothing to do with the DMV. It has to do with faith, faith here in the United States. And the results weren't encouraging. Not really surprising, but not encouraging. Uh, the number of the percentage of people that identify themselves as Christians now has steadily decreased. Now it's at 65%. That's down 12% over a 10-year period. People who just say, no, I don't, I'm not a Christian. So that's troubling. And then what's also troubling is the percentages of people that are now saying, I don't even know if I believe in God. I don't believe in God, or I'm not sure about God. And in this category, people who just say, ah, you know, maybe God, but no church, no, no connection. They don't identify as a, any particular denomination, no, no particular church. Those people are up 17%. So it's this kind of perfect storm of really bad stuff. And again, I mean, not a big surprise, right? You know, usually these kind of surveys, they just, they kind of confirm what you already know from experience. I mean, how far do you have to look? You know, you look, think of people, we all know people who, they used to go to church. Like, they used to go to church all the time. And like, now they don't. They just kind of stopped somewhere along the way. We all know people who are like, you know, they're just not getting married in the church. People who've got babies who haven't been baptized, you know, grandparents that are like, hey, are you going to call the church? Are we going to have the baby baptized? And they're like, ah, you know, I don't know. Why? Like, why has that happened? Why those stats? Why are we not in a good place as a, as a church, as people of faith? I mean, I, we could talk about this probably forever. I think some kind of obvious reasons would be uh, the culture we're living in. You know, you live in a, a culture that's increasingly secular over a lot of years. Well, what do you expect to get? A culture which doesn't really emphasize or almost discourages religion in ways that it never did. Think of colleges and universities and these surveys they say about college university professors and their attitudes about faith and church and traditional religion, they have no use for it. They're so dismissive of it. So we really shouldn't be surprised. Here's another reason, I think. Religion is demanding. Like we expect a lot. The, commandment, the Ten Commandments aren't easy. Neither are the Gospels. They're demanding. It's just a lot of people don't like being told what they should do, right? People don't like being kind of told that what they're doing is wrong. So I think there's a, a decent percentage that just sort of check out. They're like, all right, then I'm done. I don't want to hear it, so I'm just not going to come. So there's probably another reason. Here's one more. And this is the one I'd kind of like to talk about. 
And I think it's maybe the most interesting one or the most challenging one because I think you could argue that we're part of the problem. Part of the reason for those survey findings, part of it's maybe our fault. It's kind of like this DMV principle, I think. Like, we have something that people need and that they can't really get anywhere else. Like, we have access to God and people want that. Now, you can get God beyond the walls of a church. Of course you can. But we also absolutely believe that God works through the church. A church that's far from perfect, but God still uses it. So if I want my kid to have faith, like I want the sacraments. Well, you get the sacraments. You don't get sacraments at the mall. Like you got to come here. I want my kid to, to know who God is. I want my kid to, you know, learn about his or her faith. This is where we come for that. But sometimes we just make that so difficult. A little bit like the DMV people. I think sometimes we make people jump, jump through stupid, unnecessary hoops because we got something that they need. I know this person who uh, is a mother. She's got a couple of kids. She's a single mom. She's divorced. Her husband lives way out east in Suffolk. And it's not a good, a very bad breakup. He's very difficult, very uncooperative, like in almost every aspect involving the kids. He just, he just makes life difficult for her. She's got a little girl in second grade, first communion year, right? And the parish that she's in has expectations. One would be that they go to church. And they don't even require every Sunday, but a certain minimum number. They're like, hey, you got to be going to church. Like, if your kid's making his or her first communion or confirmation, like, and you're never going to church, that's a joke. Like, why are you doing it? It's not a magic show. We're not magicians up here. So, like, come on. Like, you, on some level, you got to make an effort to get on board. Or then it's just, if you don't, it's just superstition. We require it here. I think most churches are now, like, because it's gotten so crazy. It's become, for people, just cultural. They don't want to go to church. They're really not praying, but they just kind of want to check that box. First communion, confirmation, baptism. So anyway, twice a month, this little girl is out east with her father, and he won't take her to church. Whatever the mother asks, he does the opposite. So she gets a letter from her church saying, you know what, according to our records, you're, you're, not, you're not getting to Mass. And she explains it. She says, I'm trying. She goes to Mass every Sunday, the mother. She's like, I, she explains what I just told you about the husband. And they're like, sorry, sorry. Like, come on, work with me, will you? You're not going to let this little girl make her first communion? These circumstances don't mean anything to you? She couldn't believe it. 
I got the call of just sort of like outrage and shock. They're making it so difficult for her. It's like the DMV. Look at the church in this gospel. It wasn't the Catholic church, but it was religion. It was Jesus' church. Look at what the church does to this woman, this woman who's caught in adultery. We don't even give her a name. Like she's just the woman caught in adultery. And their treatment of her, it's a disgrace. They drag her out from wherever into this, like, in front of everybody. They single her out. They're not even caring about her. They're using her to get to him, him being Jesus. They want to set him up. We're going to create an impossible scenario. Whatever he judges on it, it's going to get Jesus in trouble. That's what their MO was. They're just using this woman. It says she was caught in the very act of committing adultery. I mean, what does that mean? That sounds horrible. Like, what, what were they waiting? Was it like a trap? It's gross. Hey, sometimes religion can be kind of gross. It's hard to say. It's kind of hard to hear. But I think it's kind of true. They were just a terrible mob. Not all religion, not all of Jesus' church, but more than a few. Why? Like, what happened to them? You know, Isaiah, the first reading we heard, he's this Old Testament prophet. It's a great, hey, Old Testament prophets, they're we're really what, ultimately what they're always, they're always talking about Jesus. They don't mention him by name, but their whole purpose was get your life together, be ready, be prepared for the coming Messiah. And that's what Isaiah is saying. But he begins it talking about all the great things that God in the Old Testament did. He parted the Red Sea. He defeated these enemies. All these amazing events. And then he says, you know what? All those great events, forget, uh, events, forget about them. They don't matter. It says, remember not the events of the past. Things of long ago, consider not. Forget all about that. Because something new is coming. I am doing something new, Isaiah says. Jesus was the new. And Jesus didn't look like the church of his day. Or he certainly didn't sound like it. That's why they tried to stop him. They were becoming increasingly threatened because he was legit, he was authentic, he was compelling. People started to listen. People started to follow. And guess who got threatened by that? The people in power. The people with authority. They were about power and control. Jesus was about mercy and hope. And how do we know that? How do we know that that's what Jesus' MO was, maybe more than anything? Well, just look at the last couple of weeks of Gospels, the last couple of Sundays. Remember the fig tree? What was that, about three weeks ago? This fig tree is producing nothing. The owner says, cut it down. Let's be done with it. The gardener comes in and says, you know what? Let's give it another year. We'll work with it. Second chance. Last week, the prodigal son, was it last week? Whatever the, the prodigal son was. This guy who just completely screws up his life, disrespects the people he should have honored most, his father, namely, 
and he's coming home to apologize. The father catches, sees him before the son sees the father, and he's forgiven him already. The guy hasn't even opened his mouth to say, I'm sorry, and the father's forgiven him. Second chance. Tonight's gospel, this woman, second chance. That's what Jesus looked like. That's this new that the Isaiah was talking about. That's what he was describing. That's it. It's these second chances. It's mercy. You know, Pope Francis talks about that all the time because he knows our church should always push for more mercy because that's who Jesus was. I think it's a challenge for, it's a challenge for our church. It's a challenge for us as individuals, as families, as a parish. How are we with mercy? Pope Francis had this great image. He said, this is what the church should be like, like a, an army hospital. He said, a field hospital after battle, like picture like a, a mash unit, a, a triage, an ER where people are bleeding. He's like, hey, when somebody's hemorrhaging, you're not asking them about their cholesterol. You gotta stop the bleeding. That comes first. We'll talk about the other stuff later, but we stop the, the bleeding first. That's the church. That's what the church needs to be, says Francis. You know, we had last week, here, last Sunday night, some of you may have been there, we had a parent meeting for the middle schoolers. We wanted to talk to the parents about technology. The phone, the iPhone more than anything, and its impact on our kids. It's frightening impact on our kids. Mike Griffin, our director of religious ed, did a really, really good presentation to the parents. And he was telling them stuff that a lot of them didn't know how the brain develops and how a, the brain of a, of a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old is certainly not fully developed and, and how we can become so addicted to these devices. We can lose control. I mean, again, you don't have to look too far to, to see like, yeah, my kid is on the phone way more than he or she should be. And when I talk about restricting it, he kind of turns into like a wolf man. The prospect of not having his phone, the kid freaks out. Well, come on, aren't they maybe signs that something might not be right here? My kid is less conversational. My kid is a little less engaging than he or she should be because he's got this thing in his hand and in his face as often as he can. You know, Mike Griffin said, yeah, you know what? There's no reason, there's no reason why a sixth grader or an eighth grader or a tenth grader should have their phone in their room when they go to bed. Like, why? Why do they need their, they don't need their phone. Like, if the house is on fire, they're gonna get out. Somehow, the phone's not gonna be of assistance. We ask questions like, you know, when, when did you get, allow your kid to have their first smartphone? Hey, and I'm not saying there's only one way to do this, I mean, some of this stuff has there's a grayness to it, of course. But I think what like everybody in that room last night, last week, thought, realized was like, yeah, like this is out of control and it's not good, and we need to look at it. It was a great church night. It was like this 
field hospital that Francis talked about, the church being where it needs to be. I think of what parish outreach does down at St. Mary's, soup kitchens, food pantries, outreach to the homebound, elderly people, field hospital. You know, we had a retreat this weekend, uh, Friday night until uh, last night out at the seminary in Huntington. It was a, a men's retreat just for guys in the parish. It was awesome. We had about 45 or 46 guys that were on this retreat. The age ran from a 19-year-old 19 19 to like a guy in his 80s and everything in the middle. Fathers and sons came. You know, at the end of the day, what these guys were, I think, really pursuing was, hey, the desire to be a better man. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better son. I want to be a better husband. And maybe taking 24 hours out of my busy life and focusing on that in the context of prayer and community, like maybe that'll help me be a better man. These guys already were great men, but I think they're better because of it. Field hospital. I think that kind of stuff is like the church at its best. Remember uh, Shawshank Redemption? Great movie. There's a great, a lot of great scenes in it. I think my favorite, it's a prison movie if you don't know the deal. Tim Robbins is in it, Morgan Freeman. They're friends, they're both prisoners. Tim Robbins is this uh, innocent, he's in jail, but he's innocent. And he's smart, he's a talented guy. He shouldn't be there. And the, uh, the warden trusts him. So he's working in the office and he's given a little bit more, a lot more responsibility than most of these inmates. One day he's in the office and he locks the doors so nobody can get in. In fact, the guard is there. The guard goes into the bathroom and he locks him in the bathroom so he can't get out. And he opens up this record album and it's an opera. And he puts it on a record player and he turns on the PA and he puts it right to the record. So now all over this prison, all over Shawshank, you hear this opera. And the, scene that, the scenes then that happen are just fantastic. You just get these images, guys in their cells, guys out on the, the kind of the courtyard, guys working like in the laundry detail, like these horrible places, very dark, bleak places. And in the midst of it, like this beauty. And they, these guys are like, what the heck? They're like, they're looking up. They stop what they're doing. They kind of get lost in this moment of beauty. It is a great scene. Hey, I think, like, yeah, like, life isn't perfect. And we don't get everything right. And for God's sake, the church, the church doesn't do it all right. But in the midst of the lack of rightness, great things happen. It's like the scene in the movie. This is what Morgan Freeman says. He's the, the inmate, and he's like, he's, in, he's out in the courtyard. And he's just sort of like looking up. He can't believe he's hearing this. He says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some, some things are better left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful that it can't be expressed in words. Something so beautiful that it makes your heart ache. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in this gray place could dare to dream. 
It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every man at Shawshank felt free. Jesus freed that woman in this gospel. Jesus saved her. He was the new that Isaiah preached about. He's the new that we need.